Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Working through the book of Proverbs, we continue to see Solomon give wisdom for our day-to-day life, just wise things for us to take into consideration, to apply to our lives. And I want to give a little admonition before we even get into this proverb and kind of something to keep in our minds as we go through all of the Proverbs. And it just came to me today as I was putting the finishing touches on the message, and that is that sometimes we tend to sit in church and hear a message and say, oh boy, I know someone who can use that message, you know? Or maybe we're, we're sitting there next to our spouse and we're kind of poking them and saying, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said? And I think what we, what we really need to do, and that's okay, we can be praying for people who we know might be really blessed or ministered to by a, certain, by a certain message. But I think in the Proverbs, what we need to really be doing is looking in the mirror as we study through this book. Because there may be um, several things that we come upon in the study of the Proverbs that we really need to apply to our own lives. And so um, certainly we can be praying for people but I think uh, more than anything else, let's see where we fit into these things, where, where God needs to really be uh, teaching us something where we need to be listening to the Lord and, and making those changes. So Proverbs 6 has a lot to it, so we're going we're gonna to try to get through all of it, but it's basically warnings of ungodly living. And this is what Solomon does. He just warns us, Um, against uh, a lot of ungodly things. He warns us against foolish actions. Um, He also gives us, you know, the the other side of it many times, those blessings for doing uh, righteous things in the Lord's eyes. But um, tonight we're going to go through and we're going to see a few different things. uh, As we go through the, um, just the intro here, we're going to break it down and show you some of the things Solomon is going to teach us. One of them is, uh, the f- warning against co-signing or, or guaranteeing loans. So real practical stuff. I mean, this is not, you know, we don't want to over-spiritualize any of this stuff. This is real practical day-to-day uh, living type things that, that Solomon wants to teach us. Uh, warnings against laziness. Uh, in ver- in st- beginning in verse 6, we're going to see what he has to say about that. Warnings against just wickedness, just evildoers and um, those who would seek to, um, to plot evil schemes against others. And so we're going to see Solomon's warnings against that. We'll see his warnings um, in verses 16 through 19. Very interesting passage in the Proverbs. And many of you might have read it before or heard it before. Seven things that the Lord hates. And um, in my introduction, I'm going to go through just a little bit of that. But even those words, seven things that the Lord hates, um, is something to, for us to think about. 
um, the blessings of obedience, which, you know, God shows us throughout his scriptures that there's blessings that come with obeying his word. And then um, the dangers, the, the final passage in this proverb is the dangers of adultery. Now, in Proverbs 5, we kind of give a, gave a real in-depth study through the dangers of adultery. So what we'll do this time is we'll just sort of read over them and, and see if there's maybe one or two things that we can pick out of that. So going back and, and sort of focusing in those, uh, those verses 16 through 19, seven things that the Lord hates. Actually, it's, he says six things that the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. If God is love, how can he hate? That's a question that many might ask. Deuteronomy 12.31 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods, for, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So, see, God has to hate certain things. You know, the, the pagan nations would, would worship their gods in a way that was just detestable to God. It was an abomination to God. Now, don't you hate this kind of thing that he's talking about? That they would even burn? Listen, think about sacrificing a child to your God. That's just not, that's not the God that we serve. So those kinds of things he hates. In one of the Psalms here, uh, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul he hates. So we see here that the Lord hates certain things. And I thank God he does. Now Isaiah, he says, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me and I am weary of bearing them. So God here is saying, listen, your your false religious rituals, I hate. If you're not worshiping me in spirit and in truth, if you're not worshiping me in, um, you know, with sincerity, if it's just a show, I hate that. So all of our religious rituals, you know, God knows the heart behind it. And that's what I, I love about God. He sees through all of that stuff. He sees through those, those ritualistic things. And he sees down to the heart and the motives of what we do. And so, and so for those who, who would worship him in that way, he hates it. Just a little graphic here. The hated seven things, you know, Working down the body, we see all the different things that the Lord hates. He hates those who sow discord among the brethren, hands that shed innocent blood, a proud look, a lying tongue, a heart that devises, devises wicked plans, one who bears false witness, and feet that are swift to running to evil. So the hated seven here, closely associated with the other with a contentious or a quarrelsome person. So maybe we have some of these things that we need to deal with, but, but certainly um, you know, God's going to show us here exactly what all of those things mean, those things that he hates. We worship a holy God. And in order for him to be true to his character, he must hate anything that goes against his character. Second Timothy says if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. God cannot deny his very character. He cannot possibly love something 
that's detestable. Love something that's an abomination. He must hate it according to his perfect character. So that's kind of the intro. And as we, uh, as we jump in, we're going to jump in here in the first five verses. So Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5. My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself, plead with your friend, give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So here uh, Solomon immediately starts to get into um, the subject of money. Now, the subject of money is covered hundreds of times, probably, throughout the whole Scriptures. And I think that God sees an inherent problem with how we treat money, how we view money, well, how we make money a priority. And along with money can go any, uh, any excess in material things. F- in 1 Timothy, a verse you all probably know very well, verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 6 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. How many people do we know, just for their greediness, have become sorrowful? I mean, when they, I mean, just something simple, losing all their money gambling or or maybe an ill-advised, you know, business deal, you know, just to be, just to, for greediness sake. And they, you know, they, they, uh, they pierced themselves through with many sorrows because they had just this love of money. Now, we've always heard that, the mo- that money is the root of all kinds of evil, but that's not what it says. It says the love of money. So I think Solomon here is t- teaching us too. It's how we treat and how we view money and, um, that, that he's trying to uh, teach us about. God expects his people, though, to be generous and to look out for the less fortunate. In Matthew 5:42, uh, Jesus is t- is telling us, "Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow borrow from you, do not turn away." So there is uh, you know a place for for lending, for giving to people. Um, it says in Exodus 22:25, "If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. So you see, there's very practical application here for some of these things. If a friend or, or a family member comes to you in need, prayerfully consider it, you know, and then, and then, you know, and then see what the Lord tells you. The wisdom of Solomon here gives us balance in all of this. And that's what I love about the Proverbs. You always get balance. The warning against co-signing, as he says in those first verses, or guaranteeing somebody's debt. This isn't a warning against helping someone in need, but for promising something that we may have trouble following through on. You know, when you co-sign on a, on a loan, you, you're taking that responsibility upon yourself. So the Bible, you know, it warns us about getting into too much debt. You know, we can see you know, whether it's a government or a corporation or even churches, 
um, and certainly individuals, how debt can be overwhelming, you know, to people. It's, it's actually a form of bondage when you're in so much debt. The Bible says that this is foolish. So the real warning here in these verses is that people might take advantage of your kindness. Has that ever happened to you? You know, you, you maybe co-sign on a loan or you lend somebody money and then, um, you know, they take advantage of you or certainly friendships are lost over lending of money, borrowing of money. These verses here talk about, talk about if you become surety to a friend or shaking your hand and pledge for a stranger. So they're talking about friends and strangers that you should be really wary of that, you know. Uh, certainly, again, like we lo- we've lost friends maybe over money, but making an arrangement or an agreement with a stranger, that's even more foolish because you really don't know that person. You don't know what they, might, what they might do. And when it happens, it's your own words. It's that promise that you made that kind of entraps you. And so Solomon advises his son here to go humble, humble yourself before that person and kind of get out of the deal that you made. You know, um, sometimes that's hard to do. But I think what he's trying to say here is it's best for that relationship. You know, go to that person, humble yourself. Maybe say, listen, I, I over, uh, you know, I, I overextended myself. I really can't guarantee that loan. I can't co-sign on that loan, you know. And so um, I hope you understand, but I, I don't want it to ruin our, our relationship. So that's, that's real wise. Um, I think it's also being good stewards of what God has given to each and every one of us. You know, you know, even a church, we get calls all the time from people who are in need or they say they're in need <clears throat> and, and we may not even know them. You know, we, we have a process here at Calvary Chapel, a benevolence process that people fill out an application. They have to come in personally and then we commit that to prayer. And we see if the Lord is leading us. You know, we want to be good stewards of what the Lord has given us here too. So, um, you know, a lot of times we're kind of led by our hearts and our emotions. But Solomon is telling us here to be, to be wise in those things. In uh, the next passage here in verses 6 through 11, Solomon here is giving us a warning regarding laziness. He says, Go to the ant, you sluggard, Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Kind of... uh, Pretty strong words here from Solomon about laziness. Uh, there's uh, quite a few other verses that support this same idea of, of a warning against lazy living. Um, in Proverbs 21.25, speaking of a lazy man hates his work. It says, the desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He just doesn't want to work. Um, Proverbs 26.13, a lazy man is always making excuses. It says, the lazy man says, there's a lion in the road. 
A fierce lion is in the streets. So what he's saying here is, I, I can't go out into the, into the streets. I can't go you know, down the road and do any work. But you know, there could be a lion. There could be a, you know, a, an animal there that might eat me. So he's, he's thinking of all these excuses. A lazy man sleeps all day. In Proverbs 26.14, says, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a lazy man on his bed. Just think that. Picture that in your mind. Um, a lazy man lacks wisdom in, in Proverbs 26.16. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So, you know, I, I love the Proverbs too because they kind of have backhanded insults or, you know, they, they sound so sweet and poetic and yet he's, they're really... He's, he's really telling you, uh, telling you what, it's, what it's about. Um, the lazy man... Uh, will be forced to work off his debt and it will become bondage to him. In, ver- in Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put into forced labor. And then one more about laziness. A lazy man does not provide for his family. In, ver- in Proverbs 24, the lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. So again, just more excuses, more laziness, and then when it comes to the harvest, he has nothing to provide for, his, for himself and his family. You know, our, our society, is, it's strange. Our society has kind of made leisure a priority, you know, and, and a lo- I think what it's done, it's kind of gotten us on a slippery slope where instead of emphasizing the worth, work ethic, We've emphasized, you know, vacation time and leisure time and all of that. And I think the government sort of supports that, you know, with, with all the government programs, you know, and the handouts. And I'm not going to get political here, but it just sometimes laziness is rewarded by society. And I think um, what Solomon is saying here, that's, not the, that's really not the way it should be. I know even in, our, even in a workplace, you know, laziness is not the way that a Christian should work um you know there are some companies and some unions that would tell you you know you're you know you're going too fast you're making everyone look bad but um you know you don't work for them you work for jesus it says in colossians three seventeen, and whatever you do in word or deed do it all in the name of the lord jesus so you know we even in our jobs we work for the lord and and it's a picture to the world of christ working in, in our lives. I love the picture of the ant. You know, I, I, I've always heard that the ant was the most uh, industrious uh, insect. Um, and there's an article I read here that says, in Proverbs 6, 8, Solomon wrote that the ant gathers her food in the harvest. For years, this was thought to be a mistake in the Bible. Now we know that some ants do harvest their food. They actually cut the ends off certain um, seeds of plants so they won't germinate. And then they put them underground and store them over the winter. And then in the spring, they'll, they'll sort of bite the ends off again and, and they'll start to germinate and produce, uh, produce crops. Um, consider, the article goes on, consider the parasol ant. It's been described as fascinatingly industrious. These tiny creatures may be observed traveling in a single file, each with a leaf, several times the size of its own body hoisted above its head. These leaves will be made into compost. So Solomon was right. You know, go to the ant and, and look at what they do 
and work as diligently as, as they do. So God's creation just sort of showing us that his word is always true. And again, as Christians, we're not supposed to be lazy. We're not supposed to be on the sideline. We're supposed to be in the, in the ministry. We're supposed to be in, in the work of the Lord. And we're supposed to be doing for the Lord. Now, of course, you know, that can be misconstrued too. And, you know, we don't work for our salvation. Paul does write to work out our salvation. And um, he writes in Ephesians uh, 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there are certain things that God has prepared for us to do. And we, we can't be lazy as a Christian. You know, James goes on and he says uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 18, but some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So there should be evidence is what he's saying. There should be evidence of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that evidence sometimes is in the way of, of what you do, you know, your activities in this world. Moving on to verses 12 through 15. This is a warning against someone whose desire it is to cause trouble. So this is not the lazy person who could care less about causing trouble. This is the wicked person who kind of goes out of their way to stir things up. Um, it says in, in verse 12 to, to 15, a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. So a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. That word for worthless is actually the word belial. And in 2 Corinthians 6.15, um, Paul uses that same word as a name for Satan. He says, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? So we can see how seriously God takes this, this wicked man, this person that walks with a perverse mouth, this person who, who, whose whole desire is to stir up trouble. We should recognize um, that kind of person. We should have discernment. We should pray for the Lord to show us you know, that kind of person. And really, we should, we should be avoiding him because he's being used by the enemy. Um, he winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. So these could be, you know, I, loved, I, I love reading some of the commentaries about this stuff. One of the commentators said these could be signals he's giving to one of his accomplices in, the, uh, in, in what he's doing. You know, he's sort of winking to the guy down over there to, you know, to do something, or it, it could be uh, deflecting attention, you know, which a lot of people might do. They kind of do a lot of uh, hand motions and shuffling your feet sort of to, to deflect the attention uh, from himself when he's, you know, when he's doing some evil deed. And then he sows discord. This is spoken about um, including conflict, uh, disputes, arguments, dissension. You know, we all know people who just love to argue. They usually do it, do it in order to get people on their side somehow. 
you know, they'll argue and argue, argue a point. They'll be a very contentious person, and they'll try to get people to their side, sort of to divide and conquer. So uh, be wary of that, of that thing. Um, Paul writes um, to Timothy of this kind of person. In 1 Timothy 6, he writes, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings, rank that word there is constant friction, of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. So Paul here is saying this kind of person we should draw back from. We should not we should not be in, in have close relationships with them. You know, we can see this type of person sometimes in the church. You know, some somebody it says there in verse five who who supposes that godliness is a means of gain. You know? Um Maybe they, they use their supposed knowledge of scriptures for their own gain and benefit to engage in arguments or to dr- draw people to themselves, you know, or even, you know, use their godliness to gain financially in some way. So, you know, we're being warned against, uh, against people like that. Now here, the heart of this proverb um, you know, is in these next few verses. And we'll, we'll pick it apart a little bit and then the the last couple of passages we're just going to we're just going to read over but in 16 through 19 he goes on and says this these these six things the lord hates yes seven are an abomination to him a proud look a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans feet that are swift in running to evil and a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. So this is that difficult passage where, you know, we see God hates some things. And so we need to understand that it's against his character, so he has to hate them. So we'll go through each one here. A proud look. The NIV here says haughty eyes. So we're going to see here in different areas of our body how how. Actually, the enemy can use us in our entirety to go against God. You know, we're called to love God and serve God with our whole heart, soul, mind, strength. But, you know, the enemy can also uh, use people uh, in their entirety, their whole being, to go against God. So haughty eyes or a proud look, this is uh, arrogant or conceited. Sometimes you can just see... See it on people's faces, you know, people who think they're better than everyone else and, uh, and they're not ashamed to show it. That's, that's the thing, you know. Um, they just have that look about them, that proud look. Uh, the reverse of this is to allow God to exalt you as you humble yourself before him and others. In First Peter 5, 6, Peter writes, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Isn't it better for God to exalt you as you humble yourself than for God to have to humble you because you're so proud and arrogant? It's so much better the other way. Um, The second thing here, a lying tongue. 
This is someone who speaks falsehoods in order to make someone else look bad or make themselves look good. And we see that a lot in, in church, in, in society as a whole, uh, maybe family or friends, acquaintances we see, you know, just will say whatever they, they have to to make themselves look good. The New Testament puts it uh, this way in Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. See, when, for anyone who is in Christ, we're a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. You know, even if we were maybe a liar, you know, in the past, that's not something that should be part of who we are now, you know, as sons and daughters of the Lord. Um, Alan Redpath spoke about, about this, and I think this uh, has something to do with, you know, a lying tongue. Sometimes you just hear someone who speaks so much, you kind of know that there's something a little bit off there. And he wrote of this, how very strange that we have ever come to think that Christian maturity is shown by the ability to speak our minds, whereas it's really expressed in controlling our tongues. So it's very interesting perspective that uh, Redpath has on this. It's not necessarily the most mature person who's always speaking their mind because maybe they're doing it, uh, as this proverb says, to sort of make themselves look good and make others look bad. Hands that shed innocent blood. You know, this is pretty obvious. This is basically referring to the murder of someone uh, who's totally blameless. God hates that. We should hate that. Um, a heart that devises wicked plans. This is someone who conspires to commit evil against someone else for some personal gain or benefit. Micah 2.1 says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. You know, in the morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hands. So, the, you know, someone who's thinking of these plans, these plots uh, for some personal gain. Um, James describes this sin as a progression, which starts with an idea. You know, it always starts with an idea. You know, you may be, you know, so this, this person's laying on their bed at night thinking of how they can do some evil thing to make themselves look good or to make someone else look bad. I love how James puts it in, in um, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So here's your mind going, you know, in, in uh, just thinking of those things, things that are beneficial to you, your own desires, and you're enticed by that. That's very enticing. Okay, and you're thinking about it. And when, when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So there's the progression here. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. So, so it always starts in the mind. It always starts with an idea. And that's where sin, that's where sin begins. And we can stop it there. You know, temptation does not have to go to that next uh, thing in the progression. It never has to get there. Moving on, feet that are swift in running to evil. This speaks about someone having no resistance to sin, no resistance to temptation. You know, as, as Christians, we have a new nature. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 
If we abide in him, he'll help us resist those things. You know, we, we shouldn't succumb to sin so easily and so quickly as, as Christians. You know, if we have a desire for God to be working in our lives, this should be less, it should be less and less. James 4.7 puts it very simply, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, are we submitting to God at those moments when we're, when we're tempted? Or do we just give in? You know, do we just, uh, you know, are, we, are our feet swift in just running to evil? Or do we go to God, submit to him, and then ask him to take that desire away from us? And then this, the last one here, one who sows discord among the brethren. You know, some say in looking at the, these, this passage here that this is sort of a culmination of all the previous ones, that any of those previous six will cause discord and division. And it says here, discord among the brethren. God calls us to unity in the church, um, you know, not to dispute with one another. Imagine someone new to the Lord or even someone outside the church and they see that we can't even get along with one another. You know, uh, how, what a negative effect that has on them and then on, on their view of God. You know, so it's something that we need to be really wary of. You know, Psalm 133.1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You know, how pleasant it is when we get together and we're just of one mind, you know, and uh, unified. Jesus prayed that they all may be one in John 17. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So this is a, what we show the world, how we treat one another, you know, it sh- uh, shows them Jesus working in our, in our lives. So this is spiritual unity. This is deep spiritual unity, um, as, as well as just, you know, uh, you know, being pleasant with one another. So, um, you know, the world is, the world is sort of watching us, and um, we want to make sure that they get a good of, a representation of Jesus working in our lives. So um, this next, these next few passages I'm just going to read through. Um, the only thing that I see here, especially that's different from, from the last proverb, is that uh, Solomon here is saying that these things, this wisdom that he's giving us, needs to be held really close. No, it has to be held close and it has to be so that we don't forget these things. Because how forgetful we can be sometimes, even though we know things, we just, sometimes we just don't, we don't uh, remember them. I think as we apply these things more and more and more to our lives, it becomes sort of second nature. It becomes who we are. It actually becomes our heart. So I'll read through from 20 to 35. My son Keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. 
and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. We see here, again, just holding those things close and it'll keep us from sin. Verses 27 through 35 speak about, I mean, it's a question really, can we sin without consequence? Can we sin without having an effect on us? In verse 27, can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People, who, people do not despise a thief if he steals to, to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the sub substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased through your many gifts. So, here just... Um, there's consequences to our sin. You know, there's consequences to what we do. And so these are warnings here against, against ungodly living, you know, specifically against adultery or thievery, but really, you know, in general, just doing things that are against God's law. So all sin, the, the lesson here in these verses, all sin has consequence. And, um, and the consequences usually can't be avoided, but the sin, the sin can't be avoided. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.